Today, we celebrate the triumph not of a candidate, but of a cause, the cause of democracy. The people, the will of the people has been heard, and the will of the people has been heeded. We've learned again that democracy is precious, democracy is fragile. And at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. That was President Joe Biden reminding and showing the country that despite the attack on the Capitol two short weeks ago by an angry mob trying to overturn an election, the will of the people does still govern and our democratic institutions remain intact. Biden's inaugural speech may not have had the lofty rhetoric or ringing phrases that have marked some of those delivered by his predecessors, but it hit the right notes for a bitterly divided and still anxious country. He called for unity and civility, and even reached out to Trump supporters, promising to fight just as hard for them as for those who backed him. And of course, he pledged to mobilize the government with speed and urgency, he said, to fight the once-in-a-century pandemic that has cost more than 400,000 lives and wrecked havoc on the country's economy. How will Biden's speech be remembered? We'll discuss with the man who may be more responsible than anybody for Biden's inauguration, James Clyburn, newly dubbed the savior for his critical endorsement of Biden on the eve of the South Carolina primary, an endorsement that turned the Democratic primary race around. And then we'll get the takes of two distinguished historians, H.W. Brands and Susan Eisenhower, on the Biden inaugural, as well as the legacy of his predecessor, the now-departed Donald J. Trump, all on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So it is the dawn of a new era in Washington. And uh, before we get to some of the details in Biden's speech and uh, hear from our guests, You might have noticed, dear listeners, that uh, we have uh, revised uh, the intro to Skullduggery, which had been previously focused on presidential lies, culminating with the words of Donald Trump. Trump is gone. Biden hasn't yet told any lies as president of the United States or falsehoods, as far as we uh, are aware. So we'll give him a pass for now, but we will be watching closely. We will be watching closely. And this is not just a podcast about presidential malfeasance and skullduggery. It's about politics uh, more broadly. So there's going to be plenty of material for us. I I just one thing I just want to say about the speech, which um, was really striking to me, and that is and and it relates to what we have seen with Biden since since he was sworn in, which is just a little over 24 hours ago, how they have really gotten to work, issued a flurry executive orders, um, announced all sorts of things, kind of firing on all pistons. And that is that Joe Biden has held elective office 
for about 50 years out of his 78 years. He was elected in 1973. Um, that, that I think it was 1972. He took office in 1973. Took, that's right. Yeah. So that Watergate era. And one of our colleagues who's been a regular guest on the podcast, John Ward, wrote a story in, in which he pointed out that while Donald Trump uh, rose to uh, fame and celebrity as the host of The Apprentice, that it's really Joe Biden, when it comes to power, who's the real apprentice, a guy who has, you know, been in government for all of these decades. We, for a long time, kind of elevated the outsider, people who had not been tainted by, you know, being in Washington or being in elective politics. Well, we see where that got us over the last four years. And so there is something to be said uh, for someone who has the kind of experience that Joe Biden has and can hit the ground running, you know, with a very competent team while we are in the middle of uh, multiple crises uh, at the same time. So as far as giving him a pass, we we are doing that on Skullduggery for a few days here. That won't last. Uh, <laughs> right. But, um, but I, think, uh, I think he deserves it. I think the country deserves it for the moment. Yeah. And meanwhile, uh, you know, he is walking a tightrope here. He needs to get his nominees confirmed into key positions. He's got to get this, you know, his very ambitious legislative agenda moving. But there is also this matter of impeaching the uh, now departed president and when the Senate should uh, hold its impeachment trial. And uh, my sense is that uh, they haven't worked this out. Biden is not eager to have a rapid impeachment, an immediate impeachment. I think he is more focused on getting his people in there. But we'll be talking about this with um, our first guest, Congressman Clyburn, who, uh, as we all know, is his responsible, more responsible than anybody for Biden's election. And then we've got two excellent historians to talk about both Biden and the legacy of Trump. But before we get to it, I want to remind everybody that they could weigh in on uh, the direction they think skullduggery should go and issues we ought to be dealing with and guess we should have by just tweeting at us at Skullduggery Pod. So now let's get to it. We now have with us one of our favorite Skullduggery guests, Congressman James Clyburn um, from South Carolina. Congressman, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. It's good to be back. We and others have um, previously referred to you as the kingmaker in the 2020 election. But on Wednesday, you got elevated a bit to the savior by uh, former President Bush. Tell us exactly how that conversation came about, where you were, and what it is the former president said to you. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, you know, uh, former President Bush and I... Um, have enjoyed a, uh, a pleasant relationship over the years. Uh, when he was president, we joshed around quite a bit. And um, for the last two inaugurations, uh, maybe the last three, we sat near each other and went back and forth with various things. And so on, the, on yesterday, when we reached uh, our assigned seats, 
But once again, we were near each other. And uh, I remember the conversation that he had last year, I mean, four years ago, right after that inauguration address by the newly elected President Trump, he had a very colorful description of the speech. You may remember it. He said that it, that was some strange blank blank. Uh, <laughs> you want to uh, fill in the blanks for us, please? <laughs> no, I'll let you fill in the blanks. I'm not going to do it. I think it was something like, I won't make you say it, but it was something like some strange dark shit or something <laughs> like that. It was close to that. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I kind of joked on the set to him after we bumped elbows. I said, well, Mr. President, I hope we don't have another strange speech here today. And we laughed at that. He said, no, we aren't going to have another strange speech here today. He says, because of your endorsement, which made you the savior or something like that. He said, we're here today. Uh, we've got a different kind of speech because you're the savior. And he kind of beckoned to Bill Clinton, who was standing a, a couple of feet away. And uh, Bill walked over and uh, he said, I just told Jim that uh, uh, he's, a, he's a savior. Uh, and Bill said, yeah, I agree. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's how that went. Then my daughter came over and uh, he wanted to, there's a picture floating around of her trying to get a selfie. Then uh, uh, with the three of us. So he was not satisfied that she was sufficiently in the picture. So he kind of took her device away and gave it to someone else who turned out to be the stepdaughter of the new vice president. So she took the picture. Now that put us in a little bit of a difficulty uh, because Mignon, uh, I mean, Jennifer, my daughter Jennifer was there. Jennifer's gotten all these requests from people wanting a copy of the selfie. Well, we don't have a copy of the selfie because someone took a picture of her trying to do the selfie, but it turned out that she was only halfway in the picture and uh, President Bush did not like that, so he asked somebody to come so she could be totally in the picture. So the selfie never got done. <laughs> No, I, I was going to say, you know, we'll, we'll publish the uh, selfie at Yahoo if we can get our hands on it. But, <laughs> so, Congressman, when uh, President Bush called you the savior, because without your endorsement, Joe Biden wouldn't, wouldn't have won the Democratic nomination. And then he thinks that uh, Donald Trump wouldn't have been defeated. What did that make you think? And what does that tell you about the country that a former Republican president would uh, take you aside and say that to you? You know, when I heard, or maybe when I reflected upon uh, President Biden's speech, there was a part of his speech that was kind of interesting. There was one line that stands out. Enough of us, he said, did what was necessary for all of us to benefit from this democracy. And I think that George W. Bush is placed in that enough of us, Democrats and Republicans. He didn't say enough Democrats, but enough of us as Americans. And so it says to me that there are, there's enough of us to keep this democracy 
on its pursuit of a more perfect union. I call it the great uh, pursuit that we have undertaken as a nation. And I think that's basically what it said to me. It's not, sure there's partisanship. There are some Democrats who may not be, uh, ever be sort of, uh, let's just say, uh, bipartisan enough to vote for Republicans. There are some Republicans that may not ever be bipartisan enough to vote for Democrats. But there are enough of us on both sides uh, to do things in a way that will preserve the integrity of this democracy, irrespective of our political backgrounds. So let's uh, start out by talking about a piece of unfinished business, and that is impeachment. Uh, You voted last week to impeach now former President Trump, but the speaker has not yet sent the article over to the Senate for trial. The Senate has a very crowded agenda. What can you tell us about when that article is going to go over and what you know or think is going to happen in terms of what a Senate trial will look like? Well, uh, I think the speaker is in communication with the leadership of the Senate, working on how best to get that done and do it in such a way that it will preserve the integrity of the legislative process. There are a lot of things that have got to take place. Uh, we got a new administration that's got to have its cabinet confirmed by the Senate, and we don't want anything to get in the way of, of that. I know that uh, President Biden doesn't want anything to get in the way of that. We are voting uh, in a few minutes on the the waiver that is required for Lloyd Austin to be uh, the Secretary of Defense. And there were hearings on yesterday or the day before uh, on some other positions. So these things are taking place. An impeachment trial has got to be able to go forth while accommodating uh, that process. And I think that's what they're trying to work out the schedule as to how to do this in such a way that the business of the country uh, can still go forward, can still go forward uh, so, okay, as we let, carry out in the future. Let me just so I have no idea when that's going to be. You said that uh, President Biden has made it clear he doesn't want the trial to interfere with the confirmation of his uh, nominees. Has he communicated that to you directly or to the speaker? And that could be a process that takes some weeks, if not longer, to get all the nominees, all the key nominees confirmed. That's a, I, I, yes, it could take weeks. I didn't say all, uh, but I think he's got some people he need in place right away, like the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, Attorney General designee Garland, he was the last major nominee to be announced. And, you know, his paperwork has got to go up there. There's got to be a hearing before the Judiciary Committee. That could take a while, uh, at least into February for some time. So has have you spoken to President Biden about this? No, I haven't. I have not. But when you said that he's indicated he wants, he doesn't want a trial to get in the way of that, how was that communicated to you? Uh, by various people connected with him. Uh, I talked to uh, uh, his staff and designees and that sort of stuff. 
And I read the comments that he's made that to the media. He, uh, I just saw this morning, uh, his, his spokesperson indicating more interest in uh, leaving this process up to the legislature, but for them to go uh, uh, forward with their business. So uh, I just glean all of this uh, from what I hear. But no, I have not talked directly to the president. I have uh, one follow- quick follow-up question on impeachment, and then I want to ask you a question about a related matter. On impeachment, this is obviously going to be the responsibility of the Senate, but it's a single article. Do you think that uh, the trial can be completed quickly within a few days, uh, or do you think it would have to take longer than that? Well, it would seem to me that uh, trials are developed based upon the evidence. And when you've got in the evidence the accused own words, so you don't have to gather the facts going under this rock or across uh, that hill. You've got his own words. The videotapes are there. And I don't think it takes a genius to figure out uh, what these words mean. When you look at it, uh, the expressions and hear them. I think he makes the case against him uh, himself pretty good. Separate but related, there were calls for investigations by some of your House colleagues last week, investigations into some Republican members who may have given access to the House complex and tours to individuals who turned out to have been involved in the January 6th attack on the Congress. And the suggestion was that it may have been a kind of reconnaissance tour. Now, this morning on Thursday, Speaker Pelosi, in her weekly press conference, said that if that is true and they're looking into it, it would be aiding and abetting a crime and that those individuals should be prosecuted, that charges should be pressed against them. I guess my question is... What do you think happened? Has any evidence emerged, credible evidence emerged, that these members of Congress did this, were involved in it? Well, once again, use their own words. Look at Mo Brooks, who's a member of this body. Look at uh, the speech he gave just moments before that crowd came up here. The speech the president gave moments before the crowd came up here. Look at the interviews I've seen by his brothers, by the brother, not his brothers, but the brother of Gosar, another member, his brother. And I understand other members of his family said they need to be, he needs to be expelled uh, from the Congress. So all you got to do is uh, look at their words and look at what people are saying about things they've heard them say and what they're doing. So it's there. It's that goes beyond this idea of giving people who were involved in the attack access to the House, or this sort of reconnaissance tour idea. You're, you're saying that for those people who may have in, in Congress, like Mo Brooks, who may have incited this riot, that they ought to be expelled. They ought to be brought before the body, uh, whatever the process is, uh, and uh, dealt with accordingly. What does that mean, dealt with accordingly? Well, it could be in a number of things. I sat on the Ethics Committee for a while, and I know that there are various uh, forms of punishment. Expulsion is one. Approval, uh, you can express disapproval. 
uh, and you can reprimand uh, with the members standing in the well of the house. Uh, there are various ways to deal with that. And I will let the investigation or hearing to take place uh, determine uh, what would be the best way to deal with it. So will there be an ethic, House Ethics Committee investigation into those members? I'm not on the committee. I don't know, but I understand uh, the ethics complaints have been filed. That's my understanding. I have not filed in it, uh, but I understand that some members have. So there were, I think, 121 House Republicans who voted to object to the Electoral College votes on um, on January 6th, and that was after the riot had taken place. And, you know, some of your colleagues think that anybody who endorsed those meritless objections should face some scrutiny, if not punishment. So I want to ask you an obvious comeback that some of those Republicans will raise, well, saying, look, back in 2000." Five, Jim Clyburn was one of 31 House Democrats who voted to object to uh, sitting the taking in the Ohio electoral votes in the race between John Kerry and George W. Bush. What's the difference between what we did and what you did back in 2005? Not a single person that objected to the Ohio process uh, set about trying to overturn the Electoral College. That's not what we were trying to do. If you want to describe it that way, that's one thing. We were objecting to what took place in Ohio. We remember there were precincts uh, that were relocated and all kinds of accusations were made as to whether or not sufficient notice had been given to people about the relocation of their precincts, which is what happened uh, after the Supreme Court gutted the 1965 Voting Rights Act uh, in Shelby, the uh, holder. And so that's what we objected to. Not a single soul made one statement against the Electoral College or against the democratic democratic process that's been set up. Looking forward now uh, to uh, quite an ambitious agenda that President Biden has, and you, you have a narrower majority in the House today than you did last year, which is going to make things more difficult. How do you see the president's legislative agenda unfolding now? Uh, You know, there's COVID relief, uh, there's uh, immigration reforms, all sorts of big ticket items that uh, the, the president wants done, and you have this smaller majority. Tell me what you think is doable and how you're going to um, proceed. I think a lot of things are doable, and a lot of things will be done in a way that's going to be significantly bipartisan. I really believe uh, that enough people on both sides of the aisle are interested in moving this president's agenda forward. And that leaves all the room that may be needed uh, for us to have our partisan differences. But this COVID-19 is one thing that we must get beyond. And that's what we're going to concentrate on doing. The president is now, today, as we speak, he is issuing uh, 10 uh, executive orders dealing with COVID-19. On yesterday, uh, there were 15 executive orders 
issues dealing with various things that are necessary uh, going forward. And so I believe that we are going to pass legislation in the House. A lot of it will pass without any uh, Republican support, but a lot of it will pass with what, what can you get? Support. What can you get Republican support for? Well, the first thing we're going to get Republican vote for, I think, is the uh, John R. Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act, which I think is very, very necessary. And I think there'll be Republicans uh, voting for that. Uh, won't be a, a whole lot of them, uh, but I think there'll be enough people voting for that. I think there'll be uh, people voting for uh, COVID relief. We got this Rescue Act. It's a big, big number. Uh, $1.9 trillion is uh, what it's, uh, uh, it looks like now. And we'll look at the president that's going to come forward in the State of the Union with the rest of what he called it. We won't be relief of that, but rescue that. that he, he's calling that uh, a stimulus package. That'll come in a few months. I think uh, we'll pass uh, things related to that. And so this is going to be a big infrastructure bill uh, coming forward, which I think would have the uh, stimulation uh, effect to it. So uh, there are a lot of things I think are going to get done in a very uh, bipartisan way. But, uh, Congressman, for a lot of the legislation, including you mentioned the voting rights uh, legislation, you would need a supermajority in the Senate. Legislation not relating to the budget or taxes, where you can pass them through reconciliation, you need to get over that 60 number. Do you know whether, uh, first of all, do you, do you think the Senate ought to eliminate the filibuster? And do you know whether, try to eliminate the filibuster? And do you think that Joe Biden wants to do that and will push for it? Once again, uh, Joe Biden has made some statements uh, indicating that he uh, would rather not get rid of the filibuster. Well, uh, I'll say this. He needs then to be ready uh, to use his executive authority. Authority, I've said more, uh, pretty often in recent days, I sit here having benefited my forebears, uh, passed down to me uh, the benefit of the Emancipation Proclamation. That was an executive order. General Austin, we we're getting ready to confirm him to run the Defense Department. Uh, he became uh, a general uh, in the United States Army, which was um, integrated by executive order. Before Truman's executive order, he never would have had that opportunity. So the point I'm making here is that if you cannot get bipartisan legislative support for your program, if they're going to filibuster in the Senate, like Strom Thurmond did against the 1957 uh, Civil Rights Act to keep it from passing, if you're going to filibuster to keep us from doing things, uh, the executive order's got to be at your disposal. Last question, going back to the first question about uh, you being the savior. <laughs> um, what... As you watched uh, the president take uh, his oath of office on Wednesday and uh, and give his inaugural speech, you having played such a crucial role in this happening, what were your sort of personal thoughts? Well, um, I was thinking about my days growing up in South Carolina, my study of South Carolina history, the history of the country. Uh, the fits and starts that we've had trying to get uh, to perfection in this country. 
though I know we'll never get to perfection, the fact that we have gotten off, let's just say off track uh, in that pursuit. I, I listened to that speech and I just reflected upon uh, the commitment that this president is making to undo a lot of what we saw being done over the last four years, to lay out a vision for the future that will get us back on track, back toward that pursuit. Uh, I was just thinking about that and chatting with my daughter who's sitting next to me about that process and what we could expect. Well, you had a lot to think about, and also, uh, uh, given your personal role, uh, it had to be a, a day of great satisfaction, I would think. Well, thank you very much. I, uh, I thought it uh, was a great day uh, for the future uh, of a great country. On that well note, I want to thank you uh, for joining us once again, and uh, we would love nothing more than to be able to regularly check in. Thank you. I look forward to it. You're always welcome, Congressman. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Okay, we now have with us two historians to talk about Biden's inauguration and the legacy of the now departed Donald Trump. Susan Eisenhower, the author most recently of a book about the governance of her grandfather, Dwight Eisenhower. It's, the book is called How I Led. And H.W. Brands, one of America's most distinguished and prolific historians, churning out books uh, almost every week, it seems, um, but not quite. Most recently, author of The Zealot and the Emancipator about John Brown and Abraham Lincoln, Susan and H.W., welcome to Skullduggery. Delighted to be with you. Yeah, just great. Thank you. So uh, let's start out with um, Biden's inaugural speech and his first day in office. Clearly, uh, we all remember uh, some inauguration speeches, John Kennedy, FDR. Most are not uh, quite as memorable as those. I'd like to get your takes on where Joe Biden's ranks. Uh, Susan, why don't you start out? Well, first of all, I, I thought the tone was wonderful. I uh, First of all, I, I liked the way he delivered the speech a lot. I, uh, there was a kind of intimacy to it, uh, uh, despite the fact that it was a large crowd, even if the uh, inaugural crowd itself was smaller than usual. There was a huge um, uh, media audience, no doubt. And I've heard criticism that uh, there re it's really two speeches, one about uh, the recent events and another one about bringing the country together. But uh, I think the real challenge for him after this speech is to really show that he's interested in bringing this country together. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that today, but uh, I've certainly got some views on that subject. H.W.? So if there is a historic precedent for the kind of thing that Joe Biden did yesterday, it's Thomas Jefferson's inaugural address in 1801, where after a brutal campaign, is the central point of his address was to say, in those days, the two major parties were the Republicans, Jefferson's party, and the Federalists of Alexander Hamilton and John Adams. And in his speech, Jefferson said, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists. So he set the tone. This, that was the, the second contested election, but the first one where there was a change of power. And he said, bringing the country together after this very bitter election, that's job one. And Joe Biden said the same thing. Now. If we push the press a little bit farther, 
Thomas Jefferson didn't have a lot have a lot of like doing that. And the question <laughs> about the Biden speech, and this is true, I think, I think Susan would probably agree on nearly all presidential speeches. It's what happens afterwards. If they lead to something, then the historians will say, and we saw it coming with this speech. If nothing happens, if this moment of feeling that we need to get back together, if it blows up tomorrow, which it might very well under current circumstances, then people won't remember the Biden's inaugural address at all. Well, let's talk about that. And Susan, uh, you had mentioned that this is something that we would be talking about in this conversation. And I think it's the most important aspect of the conversation in some ways. What struck me about the speech was that Biden, I think, implicitly and, and actually also explicitly made the point that I cannot do this alone. It is not all about me, which shows some maturity since ego drives a lot of what how people end up in the White House. He, he said this is going to be has to be collective. And he summoned the better angels of our nature. But he's going to have to lead and he's going to have to model the kind of behavior that we all need to follow. A, and let's start with you, Susan. Have you seen evidence of that so far? Did you see it in the campaign? And B, what kinds of things do you think he'll have to do as president to achieve that, that kind of collective action that the country needs to, to be a part of? Well, I think it's a great question, uh, Dan. Uh, I must say, I thought the speech was great, but uh, I will just express some personal disappointment that before even the inaugural party started in the evening that he was busy signing executive orders, a whole flurry of them, uh, because many of them were controversial with the other side. I mean, couldn't we have waited 24 hours? And the thing is, if he had waited 24 hours, then, you know, there might have been a general consensus that the, uh, the speech was good, general consensus being a, a United Countries consensus. Uh, so I wish he'd waited a little bit longer on that. Obviously, the COVID stuff has to come like right away, but maybe just ease in on it a little bit more and to go up as president of the United States and talk to Congress, uh, the Republican side. And we now know um, some people have stood up and been very brave in that party and then just started talking about the uh, agenda. Just take a little more time. We're going to have to ease in on this. Uh, and then, of course, and I uh, am ready to say it again and again and again, the Republican Party's got a very serious problem. It's deeply divided now around the, the, the question of whether the party represents the truth uh, and whether or not uh, we really embrace rule of law. Um, I'm no longer a Republican. I'm a registered independent. But uh, I, I sure would like to uh, have somebody talk to me and inspire me to either return or to become a Democrat. So I think, you know, Biden lost an opportunity just to let everything sink in, let the former president go home, you know, and not give him any excuse to call up his friends at Newsmax and make a deal for some future <laughs> media program. And what about you, H.W.? What would you like to see Biden do to help lead us to where he, he uh, wants to take us, that is to be more united. As a former senator, Biden is well positioned to reach out to his former colleagues in the Senate and see if the Senate will play ball. Now, he's got the narrowest of margins, it's not even a margin, in the Senate. But the Senate can filibuster stuff and prevent things from happening. So if he can find somebody to work with, some Republicans to work with in the Senate, I think that should be his first step, to show he's making an honest effort to reach across the aisle. 
The question is, the main question is, are there any Republicans who will play ball with him? And if the Republicans take the position that they did in Barack Obama's first term and say that, you know, our primary job is to make sure this is a one-term president, and they sandbag Obama from the start, then probably President Biden is going to have to do what President Obama did and then President Trump did and take executive action, which is a sorry substitute for congressional legislation because it can be undone, as President Biden demonstrated, starting, as Susan pointed out, two hours after he was inaugurated. The other question for Biden, can he hold his own party together? And we're already hearing progressives saying, okay, we were calm during the election. We got on board during the campaign. Now we elected you, Joe Biden. What are you going to do for us? And if his own party starts to cause problems for him, then he could very well have problems on both sides. Which may be why, Susan, to your point, he didn't wait on those executive orders, right? Dan, I was only going to say, um, sure, he might have been trying to manage the uh, left wing of his party, but where are they going to go? They're not going to be voting for Republicans. The question is, we have so many important issues that this country is facing. We, we really have to you know, move this along. And I think he's also underscored uh, how terrible the habitual use of executive orders are, because we almost have a parliamentary system now where, um, you know, a, a new party comes in and overturns everything the last party did. And I, I don't think uh, this is healthy for those very long term issues that he cares so deeply about. I would count myself among them. In any case, Bill is completely right. It's going to be very important to uh, go up to Capitol Hill and see who's there. But if he's too radical in the beginning, he won't even get a meeting with some of the people on the Republican side who could really help him out. It seems to me that the uh, two inaugurations that kind of come to mind when we think about Biden in terms of historical precedent is first, 1861, of course, with Lincoln, given the uh, tensions, uh, the threats, uh, the insurrectionists who were in the country's midst. Lincoln had to be snuck into Washington by train, disguised, lest uh, some of these insurrectionists uh, find him. But then also, we saw that, although we had no incidents during Biden's inauguration, I mean, the, those National Guard troops and the clearing out of all the very few bystanders, very few in the audience, um, made it clear that uh, the threats were considered very real. But the other one is FDR's in 1933, where he wanted to show addressing the, the depression and the country's ills. Isn't that what Biden was trying to do by signing all those executive orders, H.W.? I think so. I think that is the case. And in fact, so there could be a very positive parallel between this inauguration and FDR's in 1933, in that the, the incoming president has come in at just the right moment to demonstrate decisive leadership. Basically, things can't get much worse. And with FDR, it was the economy. With Biden, it's the COVID situation. And so there are vaccines that are rolling out. And it's quite reasonable to believe that within six months, things are going to come back and start to look normal. And after that, the economy will follow suit so that in the elections of 2022, Biden will basically be able to pat himself and his party on the back saying we solved COVID and we got the economy back on track. 
So timing and that sort of thing is everything. You raise the analogy of 1861. I certainly hope not because we know what happened after Lincoln's inauguration in 1861. And I would say that I think that the divisions in the country, they always seem to be enormous when you're right in the middle of them. But compared to the divisions in 1861, which were geographic as well as ideological, there's nothing quite like that today. I mean, there, there isn't half the country that's just looking for a reason to leave and thinks that it has constitutional justification for doing so. So I dearly hope we're, we don't see anything like what happened after Lincoln's inauguration in 1861. Well, I'd like to offer uh, one thing that maybe we could uh, model, and uh, this is the subject of my book. I think it was um, the most fun I had in writing that book, though it did deal with Eisenhower's wartime leadership, was his early uh, first couple of years as um, a newly inaugurated president. And he was at complete odds with his political party around the most crucial issue of all, which was whether or not the United States was going to be an international power or whether we were gonna come home after he ended the Korean War. Um, and so he had uh, a bit of Biden's problem there, that he was being pushed very, very hard by his own party to adopt a um, set of things that were uh, antithetical to his moderate view of um, his role in the presidency, a two-term presidency that he dubbed the middle way. Uh, so I, I was, uh, I'm, I'm very interested in, in uh, the challenges that uh, Biden's going to face with his own party. So Susan, yeah, you put that in the context of our foreign policy and national security policy. Let me put it in the context of our domestic politics. One of the, at least for the short term, one of the big tensions that Biden is going to face is what to do about Donald Trump, who is going to loom over our politics for quite some time with his 75 million followers um, and his need to be the center of attention. We'll see whether he'll be back on Twitter or not. But in, in a matter of weeks, there's going to be a Senate impeachment trial. And there is a I'm sure, you know, a huge part of the Democratic Party that is going to want to have a reckoning and to say, you know, there needs to be accountability for the last four years. And yet Biden may want to look forward. And he has talked about wanting to reach out to those people who did not support him. How does he deal with that tension? What's what's the middle path there? Bill, you go first. I've, I've got some thoughts, but I'm, I would be from a let's from a historical point of view, be very interesting. If I were advising President Biden on this, I would say treat it as a subject for the Senate to deal with. Uh, there's a reason that there's a separation of powers in the American government. Now, he might have thoughts on how this is going to turn out, but there's no way that he can weigh in without alienating either members of his own party or potential re Republicans who might want to come over. So the best thing he can do is just keep it at arm's length. Maybe if he's talking to Chuck, Chuck Schumer and they're talking about timing, okay, well, he might have something to say, but keep it very quiet. Don't let there be any Biden fingerprints on this impeachment trial. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good point. I was just going to say, I don't know how you can have a democracy without accountability that goes with it. The underpinnings of uh, democracy is uh, individual responsibility and other things. The, the problem at, at the core of what happened two weeks ago is that there was a big lie out there. And anybody who says that that lie is true actually is 
declaring zero confidence in our legal system. The courts reviewed this, including the Supreme Court. So, I mean, this is a really big issue. It's not like the first impeachment where the names were too complicated to keep everybody straight. You know, in Ukraine, uh, uh, there were too many Borises and too many, you know, Vanyas running around and... Uh, uh, but I, this is this was a very, very serious thing that happened two weeks well, ago. Well, Susan, the problem with that is more than half the Republicans in the House voted to object to the results of the Electoral College. And, and Michael, you're completely correct about that. So what I would say starting out is that the Republican Party has to have its own reckoning. And I don't think that the moderates in the party are going to be able to regain this party if there isn't some attempt. I mean, if I were... Um, heading the Republican Party today, I would put together a commission of our fellow members of Congress and uh, begin to go through the claims that were made and what the courts said. But we, we have a constitutional crisis right now. You know, there was an attack on not only Congress's work, but on the outcome of uh, our court system. H.W., is there a chance the Republican Party is going to go the way of the Whigs? Something you're very familiar with? <laughs> I think it's very unlikely that the Republican Party will no longer exist under the name Republican Party five years, 10 years, 50 years from now. The two parties that we have now, we've had since the 1850s. Now, the striking thing is that both parties have demonstrated an ability to evolve. So the Republican Party today is not like the Republican Party of Ronald Reagan. It's not like the Republican Party of Dwight Eisenhower. It's not like the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln. And the Democratic Party looks nothing like it, it looked under FDR or in the 19th century. So there are structural aspects of the American politicalism, starting with the fact that we don't have proportional representation in Congress. You have to get a majority in any election to get elected. So the parties will operate under the same names. The question is, what does the name Republican Party mean? And this is something the Republicans are going to have to fight out. I think that Mitch McConnell in speaking out potentially in favor of conviction, is testing the waters to see what the Republican Party could look like after Donald Trump. Is there still Trumpism after Trump? If so, then the Republicans have a big problem. But if the Republicans can sort of purge Trumpism by purging Trump, I think there are a lot of Republicans who, once they saw that possibility coming, would be happy to get on board. I have to think, I certainly hope, that most elected Republicans would are dying to see Donald Trump just go away and be forgotten. We'll see. Yeah, well, and then, but if there's an impeachment trial in the Senate, which it looks like there's going to be, he's not going to be going away. We're going to be talking, debating, obsessing about Donald Trump, at least for the duration of the trial and most likely thereafter. It's possible this could be a short trial. So the Democrats have control of the Senate. They can basically set the schedule. I think it was important that there's a single article of impeachment so they don't have to go through six different things six different times. And they can focus on this one issue. I think they could get this over within four or five days. They could yeah, they're, they're, they're actually talking about a three-day trial. Yeah, um, so. yeah. I, th I think that um, all I'm arguing for is some kind of accountability. If you look at this historically, I mean, I can't imagine that uh, Germany would be the same place today if we had not held people responsible, you know, through the Nuremberg trials and uh, any number of other uh, measures we took to chronicle the Holocaust, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's an, ex an extreme case. And I'm not trying to 
draw a parallel with the United States, but, uh, you know, even in South Africa, they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I mean, there has to be, we have to come together in some way to understand what happened, or it could happen again, I'm afraid. And, and Susan, you, you used the, uh, the phrase, the big lie before, speaking of Germany, and that is in some ways at the root of the problem here. I mean, and I will say that Donald Trump was able to perpetrate the big lie because tens of millions of people were willing to believe it. And that gets at this assault on truth, this huge distrust in, in our institutions, in our government, in our media. I guess I want to ask H.W. to start with, is there any historical precedent in this country uh, for such a large part of the country to be willing to believe things that are patently false, to, uh, to go down these conspiracy theory rabbit holes, and then for office holders and people in, in, uh, who hold power to act on those lies and conspiracy theories as we've been seeing? This is not a precise parallel, but it's fairly close. And that is attitudes in the South during Reconstruction and the decades after. If you read the, the journals of the conventions regarding secession in 1861, it's very clear that the principal issue that Southern states are concerned with is the future of slavery. But 20 years later, Southerners are saying, it wasn't about slavery, we were just asserting our state's rights. Now, there's enough cover, in fact, they were asserting the state's rights, but the state's right that they were interested in was the right to own slaves. And so in the South, there would develop this whole ideology of the Civil War was not about what you thought it was about. I'm not going to say it's a big lie in the same sense where with President Trump, it was a matter he would say one thing on Wednesday and precisely the opposite on Thursday. And so you don't have to choose which one is the lie, but you know that one of them's a lie. So, <laughs> but, but the case of so-called lost cause of the South, this idea that this part of history is not what you thought it was. And it's something that reflects much more positively on us. That was one that went on for decades. And Susan, taking it forward, you talked about the need for the Republican Party to have a, uh, a reckoning. What needs to happen so that we uh, deal with this you know, very seemingly deep-seated problem of people being willing to believe conspiracy theories and disinformation and others cynically being able to take advantage of, of them. What do we do about it? Well, I think at the heart of this is, is a rhetoric that's gone on for a very, very long time indeed, calling into question the credibility of the government itself and the institutions that are government institutions. And you can look back to previous campaigns to see that that has been in the drinking water a long time. This, I think this is one of Biden's big jobs, is to reestablish the credibility of our governmental institutions. And part of that is to stop thinking about politics. I think we've got a real chance with him, because given his age, he's unlikely to run for a second term. And this might be you know, the old exercise we used to use um, back in the days that I was traveling to as an analyst to um, the Soviet Union and, and uh, new Russia, uh, you know, there was always a big effort to find common ground if you were working on uh, arms control or uh, other policy issues. Why don't we try an exercise like that? I personally think that the problems that plague rural America are really quite similar to the problems that, that uh, plague the inner cities of our country. And we have an opportunity to address that. One, access to bandwidth. Two, nutritional, access to nutritional food. 
and the list goes on and on, access to affordable health care, all of those things. So why can't we start talking about the problems we all share rather than the problems that my base shares, which have to be entirely different than the ones yours have? And uh, as, a, as a middle of the roader here, I'm frustrated. I want to get everybody together and just say, you know, that we've got it. We've got to drop. Everything's been politicized and we've got to figure out how to depoliticize things as quickly as possible, in my view. H.W., uh, Joe Biden is the 46th president. How is Donald Trump going to rank among the previous 45? At the moment, I think you could get a clear consensus among political scientists and historians who study the presidency that Donald Trump is absolutely the worst president in American history. Really? Worse than James Buchanan? Yeah. Or, or Andrew Johnson, who's the one or, I was thinking about. Or Andrew about. Johnson, yes. Well, so the rap against Buchanan is that he did nothing as the South seceded. But so basically, he should have done better. But with, I mean, what President Trump did was to undermine the institution of the presidency, undermine the reputation of the United States in the world, undermine American democracy. And President Trump was the first occupant of the White House to really make people think, my gosh, we might be descending into dictatorship. There's been no president who's been anything. Well, arguably, didn't didn't Republicans say that about FDR? The yeah, okay. Some <laughs> Republicans said that about FDR, but nobody took them seriously, and they themselves didn't take it seriously. But people, I mean, or, or should I put it another way, viewers from outside the United States looked at Franklin Roosevelt. And nobody thought of him as a dictator. And they knew that the charges he was a dictator were driven by partisanship. But people outside the United States have been shaking their heads these last four years. What is happening to the United States? And during this last month, when the president of the United States was fomenting this riot against the Congress, against another branch of his own government, they were really wondering, oh my gosh, is this the end of democracy in the United States? In the United States, for everything else, has been this beacon of democracy to the rest of the world. America, other countries have not always liked what the United States did, but they usually thought the United States, as Winston Churchill said, could be counted on to do the right thing after trying everything else. And you'd rank him below Andrew Johnson. Yeah. Andrew Johnson was somebody who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he had a the bad temperament for it. But the thing is that when Johnson left the White House, you couldn't really find any damage that had been done to the institution or to the republic. I fear that there has been damage done to the presidency and done to the American republic. Now, I'm not going to say the damage is irreparable, but this country, both in its position in the world and in the institutions that we exercise within this country, they're worse off, by, I think, substantially than when Donald Trump became president. Susan, I have a I have a softball way to ask yeah. you this question. How would you contrast the way your grandfather governed with the way Donald Trump governed? I think if you were to uh, read my book, you would notice that they couldn't be more opposite than each other uh, in almost every way. And well, I, I give us some examples of how opposite they were. Oh, uh, well, uh, I mean, where, where do we begin? My first chapter is called Accountability Without Caveats. Uh, it's about accepting full and complete responsibility for every part of the operation on D Day, including the weather forecast. <laughs> so we can start there and then it goes on from there. How he uh, managed the White House, I think, is very 
interesting. He adopted a lot of the things uh, that worked for him during the war. And one of them is, is that he surrounded uh, himself with people on a pretty broad scale of ideological viewpoint. I mean, he uh, had some Democrats in his administration. He had some conservative Republicans, some moderate Republicans, some liberal Republicans, and he liked pushback. That's, that was the way he got plenty of pushback during the war, and he found that that pushback was helpful because it clarified his thinking. So as one of his associates said, Eisenhower did not believe that all wisdom resided in the mind of one man, end quote. So, all right, we've already, I've established at least two areas where uh, these presidents were different, and there are many, many more. I think if I could just end with this one, I was... Uh, amazed to see that in 1956, when yet another Supreme Court opening occurred, that President Eisenhower asked his Attorney General uh, Herbert Brownell to find a Democrat. And his reasoning was is that the Supreme Court must be ideologically balanced because it is uh, a non-elected co-equal branch of government and the public has to have confidence in the Supreme Court that it is apolitical. Now I thought, wow, that's a blast from the past. <laughs> Hard to imagine. Um, H.W., <laughs> let me ask you about another president who was a subject of one of your great books, and, and that is um, not Andrew Johnson, but Andrew Jackson. And Trump seems to have considered Jackson a kindred spirit of sorts, Put his hung his portrait in the Oval Office, which has now been taken down. Trump is often called a populist, America first, so on and so forth. What are the uh, parallels and what are the differences uh, between those two presidents? There is a fairly close parallel between the people who voted for Andrew Jackson and the people who voted for Donald Trump in the sense that the vote signaled an impatience and a resentment against entrenched elites. Jackson was the first really ordinary person to be elected. And he came after a presidency that began with George Washington and ran through John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, where basically it was an aristocratic institution. And Jackson breaks that hold. And in doing so, he begins to say that this is, he, actually, he's the first president who's known as the people's president. So the people who voted for Donald Trump seem to have taken the view that government is wrong, government is broken, basically they seem to be saying they wanted to blow up the government. They took something that Ronald Reagan had said in his first inaugural address, where he said that government is not the solution to our problems, government is the problem itself. But that has gone much farther in the last 40 years to government is not just the problem, government's the enemy. So that populist sentiment, that populist compulsion was responsible for the election of Jackson and for the election of Donald Trump. Now, in terms of the individuals, there's no comparison whatsoever. Andrew Jackson was a consummate gentleman. Andrew Jackson never said anything ill or believed anything ill about any woman. When Andrew Jackson gave his word, his word was his bond. Andrew Jackson revered the institutions of the American Republic. Andrew, ja Andrew Jackson understood how fragile the country was. He, he had been born before there was an American Republic. Donald Trump assumed or took everything for granted. And the other thing is that Andrew Jackson was as honest as could be, certainly in his public dealings. And Donald Trump, Lord knows where we are with that. 
one of the uh, last acts of the Trump presidency beyond pardoning a bunch of uh, cronies like Steve Bannon and others uh, and not showing up for Biden's inauguration was the release of this thing called the 1776 Report, which uh, was done by a commission appointed by uh, the president and largely seems to be an attack on leftist academics and the media for portraying America with many sins, with slavery as uh, as the central one. And uh, it was a broadsided, you know, criticism of the way American history is understood, that we do not glorify our founders and our founding documents in the way they should be. H.W., uh, uh, what do you make of this report? Well, first thing I'll say is that academics are an easy target. There aren't that many of us, and most, you know, so we we can't hit back. But you can always get on podcasts. That's the uh, (laughs) good thing for historians. So there's a long history of politicizing American history, and it happens at the state level all the time. I live in Texas. And, but if, across the American South, you see this. And so how are we gonna teach the Civil War? How are we gonna teach secession? So there's nothing new about this. And in some respects, the 1776 report is a repost to the New York Times 1619 project, which basically says that everything about American history follows from the introduction of slaves in Virginia in 1619, which, most academic historians would say this is a very tendentious reading of American history. So that's tendentiousness from the left. The 1776 project is tendentiousness from the right. Now, I will say this in defense of my colleagues, that most of us are nowhere near either end of this spectrum. We do the best we can to expose our students to various interpretations of history and let them make up their own minds. One of the things that struck me on on, on reading it is uh, the report tries to draw a connection between John Calhoun, a senator you wrote about and former vice president, who basically argued that uh, slavery is a good institution that needs to be preserved. It's not just a, a relic from the past that the South didn't want to disrupt its economy to get rid of, but it was a positive good because African-Americans were intellectually inferior, not capable of governing themselves. It was right to have white masters owning them. Uh, But they draw a connection. They they portray that as part of a, a theory of group rights and then draw a direct connection between Calhoun and those who advocate for affirmative action. Uh, They're saying they they both think in terms of group rights instead of individual rights. Um, What do you make of that? Well, as I said, it's a very tendentious reading of history. You could wring out of some of the things that John Calhoun said, something will connect with identity politics today. But to think that there's any of the spirit of John Calhoun on the American left today is an absurd reading of the past. Right. And and just remind us just who John Calhoun was and how influential he was in the John Calhoun Civil was War. a towering figure in the American Congress, especially the American Senate in the first half of the 19th century. He was from South Carolina. He probably had the sharpest legal and constitutional mind of his era. He was 
the theorist of secession. At first, when South Carolina was threatened to secede in the 1830s, but then his ideas were carried forward past his death when South Carolina led the secession movement starting right after Abraham Lincoln's election. He was also a slaveholder and an apologist for slavery, as you point out. So he became, at one time, he was a national figure. Early in his political career, he had hopes of becoming president. But when the South began retreating more into concern for slavery, and it became clear that he could not be a national figure, he decided to become the hero to the South. And you see him becoming more extreme on the slavery question, more extreme on the state's rights and secessionist question. Well, to end this uh, fascinating uh, discussion, I I think we ought to take advantage of the fact that we have a relative of an American president on our panel. And I'd like to ask you, Susan, what you think Joe Biden can learn from Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, The thing that, that comes to mind for me is that Biden has talked about kind of calming things down in this country, that we have been in this period of great tumult and uh, hyper-partisanship, and that we need to take a breath and calm down, which I think a lot of Americans would like to do. And I think of, of Ike as having played that role, that that period seemed calmer and more placid in a lot of ways. But I wonder what you think. Well, Dan, thank you for that question. You know, I, I must say, back to uh, Biden's inaugural ceremony, I was just thrilled um, that Garth Brooks came and sang, and I don't think there was a dry eye in the National House. And I say that because it was some nod to uh, the fact that this singer from Oklahoma comes from a part of the world that did not support uh, the president. It would be, uh, I think if Dwight Eisenhower were uh, being inaugurated right now, he would do some things right off the bat to show the people who lost the election, that he cares about them too. In other words, uh, this would be, there are all sorts of ways to call it strategically, but it's not co-option necessarily, but we have so much mistrust, mistrust of the elites and the rest of it, that that has to be shown. So you can't tell, you have to show too. Uh, The other thing is, and I don't know, I think it's up to all of us to help dispel this culture that um, was produced vividly um, in Donald Trump's assessment of things. You know, this country is not made up of winners and losers. This is a theme that reoccurs in my book. Dwight Eisenhower wanted to win wars, but he never labeled people winners and losers. Everybody had a second chance. Ways to, uh, you know, patience with their maturity and the rest of it. And I think that this winners and losers things makes compromise extremely difficult. I mean, we're surrounded by maximalists. Let's go in and if you can get three quarters of what you want, that's great, or can't we do some horse trading? So I think that, uh, to uh, the earlier point that H.W. made, I mean, it's a, a terrific thing that um, uh, Biden is from the Senate because he knows how to horse trade. And so does Mitch McConnell. And Mitch McConnell's on the right side of the Republican uh, line at this point. And so two other things very quickly. Eisenhower's a military strategist, was brilliant at knowing what he controlled and what he didn't control. And this is one reason why uh, Senator McCarthy, uh, he had to uh, adapt, uh, adopt a very sophisticated uh, way of dealing with McCarthyism because it was the Senate who had to censure Senator McCarthy. The president of the United States couldn't do that. And in the process of that, he didn't believe in personalities, which is to criticize anybody 
personally in public because in doing so you would make a dedicated enemy. So there, I think there's plenty in the, uh, the book. I did hear Joe Biden say um, this morning, I think that he was going to be doing what he could control. And I was thinking, yes, that's great. That's great because that's, we have to, you know, assess each issue and figure out where the uh, points of leverage are and where the president of the United States can actually make that significant difference. But I know um, all of us really wish the new president well. And even if those out in rural areas are the ones who voted for Donald Trump, I think a few deft moves um, in the beginning of this administration could go a long way to softening up uh, what remains of his base. And H.W., a final thought? It's harder to be president today than it was to be president Dwight Eisenhower's day. I hope that the country has not become ungovernable. If you look at the history of the presidencies of this century, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, it's partisan war from the very beginning. A lot of this has to do with changes in the parties themselves. In Eisenhower's day, there were conservative Democrats that Eisenhower could work with. It was the Texas Troika of Eisenhower, born in Denison, Texas, Lyndon Johnson and Sam Rayburn, House, uh, Senate Majority Leader and Speaker of the House, they ran the country. And it was a very bipartisan leadership. Bipartisanship is almost dead at this point because the parties have sifted out so much philosophically. There are no conservative Democrats. There are no liberal Republicans. Now, I hope that's not a terminal condition, but as long as that is the case, then it's really difficult for any president, since we're speaking of presidents, to expect any cooperation from the other party. There's simply no incentive to do so. But if, and I, I hope it's possible, that if somehow there can be a little bit of movement so that even if only three or four Republican senators vote for conviction of Donald Trump on the impeachment charge, then it demonstrates that, okay, this is not simply a partisan issue. And then maybe build from there. So yeah, I, I would just add to that, though, uh, that if three or four vote, uh, Trump is still acquitted. You need 17 to convict him, uh, 17 Republicans to do so. And are you at all nervous that a lacking that, you know, the headline's going to be Trump acquitted? I'm not too concerned about it, actually. I think the Senate has to act. I mean, constitutionally, it has to act. And I think that even if Trump is not convicted, then simply viewing it from a political standpoint, Democrats will be able to hold Republicans to account in 2022 and in 2024. Say, okay, you're still the party that's clinging to Donald Trump. The Democrats won this time around because Donald Trump was such a burden to the Republicans. There were so many people who came out and voted against Donald Trump. The Democrats should hope that they can get people to turn out and vote against Donald Trump in 2022 and maybe again in 2024. In fact, simply from the Democrats' partisan standpoint, they're better off having Donald Trump hang around than for the Republicans to get a reasonable candidate. Well, I'm not sure anybody actually wants him to hang around at this point. Uh, a good riddance you, seems you to be the phrase that, that the counts. detox period is going to be long. Yes, yes. And uh, could be uh, usefully used by reading the books of uh, Susan Eisenhower and H.W. Brands. I want to thank you both for joining us. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.